Christmas, you spooktacular people. Welcome to the History Goes Bump podcast Christmas special for 2014. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And we want to invite you to come on and hang out here near our roaring fire with us as we share Christmas stories on this Christmas Eve, waiting for Santa to arrive with all of the good presents. You think he's bringing you anything good, Denise? I don't know. I had that shirt held up that you took a picture of that says, no matter if I've been naughty or nice, I get whatever I want. (laughs) (laughs) I have a feeling Cole might be coming your way. Before we got into sharing the stories that we want to do this evening, we thought we'd share a little bit about the history of sharing ghost stories, because some people might think, aren't ghost stories for Halloween? What are they doing with Christmas? Well, this is a tradition that goes back many, many decades, and so we thought we'd share that with you to begin with. The chorus of the Christmas Carol, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, goes like this. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Oh, you weren't going to sing that for us? Diane, I want to keep our listeners. There's a reason I don't sing. (laughs) And uh, yeah, there's a reason why I don't sing either. So if you want to hear people singing Christmas carols, you're not going to get that here. And really, it's for your benefit. (laughs) At most, we might try to wrap it, but I don't think that would work. (laughs) Now, the interesting thing about the word carol is that a lot of people think when you hear the word carol, it means a Christmas song. And it does not mean that. Carols can be used for any kind of song that is sung while you're standing in a circle. That's all carol means, is singing a song in a circle. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So people sing this carol every year, but we wonder if they stop to think about the line dealing with ghost stories. What do ghost stories have to do with Christmas? Aren't ghost stories for Halloween? Most of the traditions like caroling and sending Christmas cards date back to Victorian England. There is one tradition that has been lost. People in Victorian England used to sit around the fire on Christmas Eve and tell scary ghost stories. British humorist Jerome K. Jerome explains why there is the tradition of telling ghost stories in his 1891 anthology, Told After Supper, by writing, quote, There must be something ghostly in the air of Christmas, something about the close, muggy atmosphere that draws up the ghosts, like the dampness of the summer rains brings out the frogs and snails. For ghost stories to be told on any other evening than the evening of the 24th of December would be impossible in England society as at present regulated. So what is it about Christmas that goes so well with ghosts? Such a question inevitably brings up the issue of why we celebrate Christmas in December at all, end quote. Originator of the antiquarian ghost story, M.R. James wrote in 1904 in a preface to one of his works that he, quote, wrote these stories at long intervals and most of them were read to patient friends, usually at the seasons of Christmas, end quote. James also detailed how a good ghost story should be told by writing, quote, Two ingredients most valuable in the concocting of a ghost story are, to me, the atmosphere and the nicely managed crescendo. Let us then be introduced to the actors in a placid way. Let us see them going about their ordinary business, undisturbed by forebodings, pleased with their surroundings, and into this calm environment. Let the ominous thing put out its head, unobtrusively at first, and then more insistently until it holds the stage. Another requisite, in my opinion, is that the ghost should be malevolent or odious. Amiable and helpful apparitions are all very well in fairy tales or in local legends, but I have no use for them in a fictitious ghost story. End quote. And I have to agree. I would think you would agree, because Diane also has no use for sparkly vampires, or any of the or villains that are the anti-villain or the anti-hero. Yeah, you want to make her mad, take something scary and make it good. <laughs> and she <laughs> will have a fit. The best proof that ghost tales were an important tradition is in the Charles Dickens' beloved Christmas classic, A Christmas Carol. Not only is the story a morality tale, but it incorporates the use of ghosts to scare Ebenezer Scrooge into becoming a more compassionate human being. The ghost of Marley coming on Christmas Eve to Scrooge follows the tradition of Christmas ghost tales as well. There is also the connection to the winter solstice, which represents the death of of light and the taking on of more darkness with the day being the shortest one of the year. Some say this leads to the winter solstice being the most haunted day of the year. 
Some scholars will claim that ghost stories at this time of year dates back further than the Victorian era and could go all the way back to Celtic times when the solstice was more revered. We may never know exactly when the telling of ghost stories on this day originated, but we do know that it is a lost tradition. Now, we had sent out the call to all the listeners that we wanted to hear from you what some of your favorite ghost tales were that you would like to hear, or if you'd had any experiences over Christmas. Apparently, none of you have had any spooky experiences over Christmas. But when I put the call out to Twitter, I got a whole lot of responses, and I just want to thank you guys for sending me some of your tweets that with your suggestions and here's just a few of them that we got Daria Di Giovanni said anything by Edgar Allan Poe of course he's always good for a short tale she also suggested the legend of Sleepy Hollow oh nice and there is an independent author out there by the name of Jamie Wilson who wrote a story by the name of Biscuit Boy that she said is creepy on many different levels Daniela Bova tweeted me that she walks these halls and ghost writers by Sharon McCrum are very good and to check those out. Kia Heavey suggested Haunting of Hill House. I bet that one's a good one. Dr. Horror Geek said Hell House by Richard Matheson. And I love Richard Matheson. Did you ever see the movie Somewhere in Time? Um, Yes, because that's one of your favorite movies. <laughs> and I've heard the soundtrack more times than I can count. <laughs> But it is a wonderful movie. Well, Richard Matheson wrote that story. So he's also written a a story called Hell House. Uh, Dr. Giallo suggested The Innocents. And then we have two other stories that were suggested to us that we actually have picked for this evening. Jane Mainly Pittock. I knew for sure she'd be good for M.R. James. She suggested Canon Albrecht's Scrapbook. And Jim Moon of Hypnagoria suggested The Red Lodge by Wakefield. And Wakefield is very well known for his ghost stories, which he started writing in the 1920s. So listen to this podcast as we take part in this fun Christmas tradition. Pull up a chair to the fire, grab some hot cocoa or some eggnog and cookies, and we will take you away on a fantastical time. We will begin with the first ghost story M.R. James wrote and shared with his friends near the fireplace. Canon Albrecht's Scrapbook. This tale was written in 1894. I'm going to apologize ahead of time. There are French and Latin words in this story that I'm going to share with you, and I don't speak either, so I apologize now. I know I'm going to butcher them. St. Bertrand de Camoges is a decayed town on the spurs of the Pyrenees, not very far from Toulouse, and still near to Bagnères de Luchon. It was the site of a bishopric until the Revolution and has a cathedral which is visited by a certain number of tourists. In the spring of 1883, an Englishman arrived at this old world place. I can hardly dignify it with the name of city, for there are not a thousand inhabitants. He was a Cambridge man who had come specially from Toulouse to see St. Bertrand's Church and had left two friends who were less keen archaeologists than himself in their hotel at Toulouse under promise to join him on the following morning. Half an hour at the church would satisfy them, and all three could then pursue their journey in the direction of Auk. But our Englishman had come early on the day in question and proposed to himself to fill a notebook and to use several dozens of plates in the process of describing and photographing every corner of the wonderful church that dominates the little hill of Comage. In order to carry out this design satisfactorily, it was necessary to monopolize the verger of the church for the day. The verger, or sacristan, I prefer the latter appellation, inaccurate as may be, was accordingly sent for by the somewhat brusque lady who keeps the inn of the Chapeau Rouge, and when he came, the Englishman found him an unexpectedly interesting object of study. It was not in the personal appearance of the little dry, wizened old man that the interest lay, for he was precisely like dozens of other church guardians in France, but in a curious, furtive, or rather hunted and oppressive air which he had. He was perpetually half-glancing behind him. The muscles of his back and shoulders seemed to be hunched in a continual nervous contraction, as if he were expecting every moment to find himself in the clutch of an enemy. The Englishman hardly knew whether to put him down as a man haunted by a fixed delusion, or as one oppressed by a guilty conscience, or as an unbearable henpecked husband. The probabilities, when reckoned up, certainly pointed to the last idea, but still the impression conveyed was that of a more formidable persecutor even than a termagant wife. However, the Englishman, let us call him Deniston, was soon too deep in his notebook and too busy with his camera to give more than an occasional glance to the sacristan. Whenever he did look at him, he found him at no great distance, either huddling himself back against the wall or crouching in one of the gorgeous stalls. Deniston became rather fidgety after a time. 
mingled suspicions that he was keeping the old man from his dejeuner, that he was regarded as likely to make way with St. Bertrand's ivory crozier, and with the dusty stuffed crocodile that hangs over the font began to torment him. "'Won't you go home?' he said at last. "'I'm quite well able to finish my notes alone. "'You can lock me in if you like. "'I shall want at least two hours more here, "'and it must be cold for you, isn't it?' "'Good heavens!' said the little man, "'whom the suggestion seemed to throw into a state of unaccountable terror. "'Such a thing cannot be thought of for a moment. "'Leave Monsieur alone in the church. "'No, no. Two hours, three hours, all will be the same to me. "'I have breakfasted. I am not at all cold, with many thanks to Monsieur.' "'Very well, my little man,' quoth Deniston to himself. "'You've been warned, and you must take the consequences.' "'Before the expiration of the two hours, "'the stalls, the enormous dilapidated organ, "'the choir screen of Bishop John de Moulin, "'the remnants of glass and tapestry, "'and the objects of the treasure chamber "'had been well and truly examined. "'The sacristan still keeping at Deniston's heels, "'and every now and then whipping round as if he had been stung, "'when one or other of the strange noises "'that trouble a large empty building fell on his ear.' curious noises they were sometimes once Denison said to me i could have sworn i heard a thin metallic voice laughing high up in the tower i darted an inquiring glance at my sacristan he was white to the lips it is he that is it is no one the door is locked was all he said and we looked at each other for a full minute another little incident puzzled Denison a good deal he was examining a large dark picture that hangs behind the altar one of a series illustrating the miracles of saint bertrand the composition of the picture is well nigh indecipherable, but there is a Latin legend below which runs thus Qualitir se Bertrandus liberavit hominem quem diabolus di volabat strangular. How St. Bertrand delivered a man whom the devil long sought to strangle. Deniston was turning to the sacristan with a smile and a jocular remark of some sort on his lips, but he was confounded to see the old man on his knees, gazing at the picture with the eye of a supplicant in agony, his hands tightly clasped and a rain of tears on his cheeks. Deniston naturally pretended to have noticed nothing, but the question would not go away from him. Why should a daub of this kind affect anyone so strongly? He seemed to himself to be getting some sort of clue to the reason of the strange look that he had been puzzling him all the day. The man must be a monomaniac. But what was his monomania? It was nearly five o'clock. The short day was drawing in, and the church began to fill with shadows while the curious noises, the muffled footfalls and distant talking voices that had been perceptible all day, seemed, no doubt, because of the fading light and the consequently quickened sense of hearing to become more frequent and insistent. The sacristan began for the first time to show signs of hurry and impatience. He heaved a sigh of relief when camera and notebook were finally packed up and stowed away, and hurriedly beckoned Deniston to the western door of the church under the tower. It was time to ring the Angelus. A few pulls at the reluctant rope, and the great bell Bertrand, high in the tower, began to speak and swung her voice up among the pines and down to the valleys, loud with mountain streams, calling the dwellers on those lonely hills to remember and repeat the salutation of the angel to her whom he called blessed among women. Without a profound quiet seemed to fall for the first time that day upon the little town, and Deniston and the sacristan went out of the church. On the doorstep they fell into conversation. Monsieur seemed to interest himself in the old choir books and the sacristy. Undoubtedly. I was going to ask if there were a library in the town. No, Monsieur. Perhaps there used to be one belonging to the chapter, but is now such a small place. Here came a strange pause of irresolution, as it seemed. Then, with a sort of plunge, he went on. But if Monsieur is amateur de virix livres, I have at home something that might interest him. It is not a hundred yards. At once, all Deniston's cherished dreams of finding priceless manuscripts in untrodden corners of France flashed up to die down again the next moment. It was probably a stupid missile of Planton's printing about 1580. What was the likelihood that a place so near Toulouse would not have been ransacked long ago by collectors? However, it would be foolish not to go. He would reproach himself forever after if he refused, so they set off. On the way, the curious irresolution and sudden determination of the sacristan recurred to Deniston, and he wondered in a shamefaced way whether he was being decoyed into some perlu to be made away with as a supposed rich Englishman. He contrived, therefore, to begin talking with his guide and to drag in, in a rather clumsy fashion, the fact that he expected two friends to join him early the next morning. To his surprise, the announcement seemed to relieve the sacristan at once of some of the anxiety that oppressed him. That is well, he said quite brightly. That is very well. 
Mansoor will travel in company with his friends. They will be always near him. It's a good thing to travel thus in company. Sometimes. The last word appeared to be added as an afterthought and to bring with it a relapse into gloom for the poor little man. They were soon at the house, which was one rather larger than its neighbor's stone belt with a shield covered over the door, the shield of Albrecht de Malion, a collateral descendant, Deniston tells me, of Bishop John de Malion. This Albrecht was a canon of Comage from 1680 to 1701. The upper windows of the mansion were boarded up and the whole place bore, as does the rest of Comage, the aspect of decaying age. Arrived at his doorstep, the sacristan paused a moment. Perhaps, he said... Perhaps after all, Monsieur has not the time. Not at all. Lots of time. Nothing to do till tomorrow. Let us see what it is you've got. The door was open at this point, and a face looked out, a face far younger than the sacristan's, but bearing something of the same distressing look. Only here it seemed to be the mark, not so much of fear for personal safety, as of acute anxiety on behalf of another. Plainly, the owner of the face was the sacristan's daughter. And, but for the expression I've described, she was a handsome girl enough. She brightened up considerably on seeing her father accompanied by an able-bodied stranger. A few remarks passed between father and daughter, of which Deniston only caught these words said by the sacristan. He was laughing in the church, words which were answered only by a look of terror from the girl. But in another minute they were in the sitting room of the house, a small high chamber with a stone floor full of moving shadows cast by a wood fire that flickered on a great hearth. Something of the character of an oratory was imparted to it by a tall crucifix, which reached almost to the ceiling on one side. The figure was painted of the natural colors. The cross was black. Under this stood a chest of some age and solidity, and when a lamp had been brought and chair set, the sacristan went to this chest and produced therefrom, with growing excitement and nervousness, as Deniston thought, a large book wrapped in a white cloth, on which cloth a cross was rudely embroidered in red thread. Even before the wrapping had been removed, Deniston began to be interested by the size and shape of the volume. Too large for a missile, he thought, and not the shape of an antiphoner. Perhaps it may be something good after all. The next moment the book was open and Deniston felt that he had at last lit upon something better than good. Before him lay a large folio bound, perhaps late in the 17th century, with the arms of Canon Albrecht de Melion stamped in gold on the sides. There may have been 150 leaves of paper in the book, and on almost every one of them was fastened a leaf with an illuminated manuscript. Such a collection Deniston had hardly dreamed of in his wildest moments. Here were ten leaves from a copy of Genesis, illustrated with pictures, which could not be later than A.D. 700. Further on was a complete set of pictures from a Psalter, of English execution, of the very finest kind that the 13th century could produce, and perhaps best of all, there were twenty leaves of uniseal writing in Latin, which, as a few words seen here and there told him at once, must belong to some very early unknown patristic treatise. Could it possibly be a fragment of the copy of Papias on the words of our Lord, which was known to have existed as late as the 12th century at Nimes? In any case, his mind was made up. That book must return to Cambridge with him, even if he had to draw the whole of his balance from the bank and stay at St. Bertrand till the money came. He glanced up at the sacristan to see if his face yielded any hint that the book was for sale. The sacristan was pale and his lips were working. We now know that these leaves did contain a considerable fragment of that work, if not of that actual copy of it. If Mansour will turn to the end, he said. So Mansour turned on, meeting new treasures at every rise of a leaf, and at the end of the book he came upon two sheets of paper of much more recent date than anything he had seen yet, which puzzled him considerably. They must be contemporary, he decided, with the unprincipled canon Albrecht, who had doubtless plundered the chapter library of St. Bertrand to form this priceless scrapbook. On the first of the paper sheets was a plan, carefully drawn and instantly recognizable by a person who knew the ground of the South Isle and cloisters of St. Bertrand's. There were curious signs looking like planetary symbols and a few Hebrew words in the corners, and in the northwest angle of the cloister was a cross drawn in gold paint. Below the plan were some lines of writing in Latin which ran thus, Responsa 12, December 1694, Interrogatum est in Responsum est Invinius, Fiemene dives, Fais, Vimene invendies, Vives, Oriani, and Lecto meo. Answers of the 12th of December, 1694, it was asked, Shall I find it? Answer, Thou shalt. Shall I become rich? Thou wilt. 
Shall I live an object of envy? Thou wilt. Shall I die in my bed? Thou wilt. A good specimen of the treasure hunter's record quite reminds one of Mr. Minor Cannon Quartermain in Old St. Paul's was Deniston's comment, and he turned the leaf. What he then saw impressed him, as he has often told me, more than he could have conceived any drawing or picture capable of impressing him. And though the drawing he saw is no longer in existence, there is a photograph of it which I possess, which fully bears out that statement. The picture in question was a sepia drawing at the end of the 17th century representing one would say at first sight a biblical scene. For the architecture, the picture represented an interior, and the figures had that semi-classical flavor about them which the artists of 200 years ago thought appropriate to illustrations of the Bible. On the right was a king on his throne, the throne elevated on 12 steps, a canopy overhead, soldiers on either side, evidently King Solomon. He was bending forward with outstretched scepter. In attitude of command, his face expressed horror and disgust. Yet there was in it almost the mark of imperious command and confident power. The left half of the picture was the strangest, however. The interest painly centered there. On the pavement before the throne were grouped four soldiers, surrounding a crouching figure which must be described in a moment. A fist soldier lay dead on the pavement, his neck distorted and his eyeballs starting from his head. The four surrounding guards were looking at the king. In their faces, the sentiment of horror was intensified. They seemed, in fact, only restrained from flight by their implicit trust in their master. All this terror was plainly excited by the being that crouched in their midst. I entirely despair of conveying by any words the impression which this figure makes upon anyone who looks at it. I recollect once showing the photograph of the drawing to a lecturer on morphology, a person of, as I was going to say, abnormally sane and unimaginative habits of mind. He absolutely refused to be alone for the rest of that evening, and he told me afterwards that for many nights he had not dared to put out his light before going to sleep. However, the main traits of the figure I can at least indicate. At first you saw only a mass of coarse, matted black hair. Presently it was seen that this covered a body of fearful thinness, almost a skeleton, but with the muscles standing out like wires. The hands were of a dusky pallor, covered, like the body, with long, coarse hairs and hideously taloned. The eyes, touched in with a burning yellow, had intensely black pupils, and were fixed upon the throned king with a look of beast-like hate. Imagine one of the awful bird-catching spiders of South America translated into human form, and endowed with intelligence just less than human, and you will have some faint conception of the terror inspired by the appalling effigy. One remark is universally made by those to whom I have shown the picture. It was drawn from life. As soon as the first shock of his irresistible fright had subsided, Deniston stole a look at his host. The sacristan's hands were pressed upon his eyes. His daughter, looking up at the cross on the wall, was telling her beads feverishly. At last the question was asked, is this book for sale? There was the same hesitation, the same plunge of a determination that he had noticed before, and then came the welcome answer. If Monsieur pleases, how much do you ask for it? It will take 250 francs. This was confounding. Even a collector's conscience is sometimes stirred, and Deniston's conscience was tendered than a collector's. My good man, he said again and again, your book is worth far more than 250 francs. I assure you, far more. But the answer did not vary. I will take 250 francs, not more. There was really no possibility of refusing such a chance. The money was paid, the receipt signed, a glass of wine drunk over the transaction, and then the sacristan seemed to become a new man. He stood upright. He ceased to throw those suspicious glances behind him. He actually laughed or tried to laugh. Deniston rose to go. I shall have the honor of accompanying Monsieur to his hotel, said the sacristan. Oh, no thanks. It isn't a hundred yards. I know the way perfectly. And there's a moon. The offer was pressed three or four times and refused as often. Then Monsieur will summon me if, if he finds occasion, he will keep the middle of the road. The sides are so rough. Certainly, certainly, said Deniston, who was impatient to examine his prize by himself, and he stepped out into the passage with his book under his arm. Here he was met by the daughter. She, it appeared, was anxious to do a little business on her own account, perhaps like Gehazi, to take somewhat from the foreigner whom her father had spared. A silver crucifix and chain for the neck, Monsieur, would perhaps be good enough to accept it. Well, really, Deniston hadn't much for these things. What did Mademoiselle want for it? Nothing. Nothing in the world. Monsieur is more than welcome to it. 
The tone in which this and much more was said was unmistakably genuine, so that Deniston was reduced to profuse thanks and submitted to have the chain put around his neck. It really seemed as if he had rendered the father and daughter some service which they hardly knew how to repay. As he set off with his book, they stood at the door looking after him, and they were still looking when he waved them a last good night from the steps of the Chapeau Rouge. Dinner was over, and Deniston was in his bedroom, shut up alone with his acquisition. The landlady had manifested a particular interest in him since he had told her that he had paid a visit to the sacristan and bought an old book from him. He thought, too, that he had heard a hurried dialogue between her and the said sacristan in the passage outside the Salle Amanege. Some words to the effect that Pierre and Bertrand would be sleeping in the house had closed the conversation. At this time, a growing feeling of discomfort had been creeping over him. Nervous reaction, perhaps, after the delight of his discovery. Whatever it was, it resulted in a conviction that there was someone behind him and that he was far more comfortable with his back to the wall. All this, of course, weighed light in the balance as against the obvious value of the collection he had acquired. And now, as he said, he was alone in his bedroom, taking stock of Canon Albrecht's treasures in which every moment revealed something more charming. Bless Canon Albrecht, said Deniston, who had an inveterable habit of talking to himself. I wonder where he is now. Dear me, I wish that landlady would learn to laugh in a more cheering manner. Makes one feel as if there was someone dead in the house. Half a pipe more, did you say? I think perhaps you're right. I wonder what that crucifix is that that young lady insisted on giving me. Last century, I suppose. Yes, probably. It's rather a nuisance of a thing to have round one's neck. Just too heavy. Most likely her father's been wearing it for years. I think I might give it a clean-up before I put it away. He had taken the crucifix off and laid it on the table when his attention was caught by an object lying on the red cloth just by his left elbow. Two or three ideas of what it might be flitted through his brain with their own incalculable quickness. A pen whipper? No, no, such a thing in the house. A rat? No, too black. A large spider. I trust to goodness not no. Good God, a hand like the hand in that picture? In another infinitesimal flash, he had taken it in. Pale, dusty skin, covering nothing but bones and tendons of appalling strength, coarse black hairs longer than ever grew on a human hand. Nails rising from the ends of the fingers and curving sharply down and forward, gray, horny, and wrinkled. He flew out of his chair with deadly, inconceivable terror, clutching at his heart. The shape whose left hand rested on the table was rising to a standing posture behind his seat its right hand crooked above his scalp. There was black and tattered drapery about it. The coarse hair covered it as in the drawing. The lower jaw was thin. What can I call it? Shallow, like a beast's. Teeth showed behind the black lips. There was no nose. The eyes of a fiery yellow, against which the pupils showed black and intense, and the exulting hate and thirst to destroy life which shone there were the most horrifying features in the whole vision. There was intelligence of a kind in them, intelligence beyond that of a beast, below that of a man. The feelings which this horror stirred in Deniston were the intensest physical fear and the most profound mental loathing. What did he do? What could he do? He has never been quite certain what words he said, but he knows that he spoke, that he grasped blindly at the silver crucifix, that he was conscious of a moment towards him on the part of the demon, and that he screamed with the voice of an animal in hideous pain. Pierre and Bertrand, the two sturdy little serving men who rushed in, saw nothing but felt themselves thrust aside by something that passed out between them and found Deniston in a swoon. They sat up with him that night, and his two friends were at St. Bertrand by nine o'clock next morning. He himself, though still shaken and nervous, was almost himself by that time, and his story found credence with them, though not until they had seen the drawing and talked with the sacristan. Almost at dawn, the little man had come to the inn on some pretense and had listened with the deepest interest to the story retailed by the landlady. He showed no surprise. It is he, it is he, I've seen him myself, was his only comment, and to all questionings but one reply was vouched. De je vous, je les ai vous, mille vous, c'est je les... Senti. He would tell them nothing of the provenance of the book, nor any details of his experiences. I shall soon sleep, and my rest will be sweet. Why should you trouble me? He said. He died that summer. His daughter married and settled at St. Papoul. She never understood the circumstances of her father's obsession. We shall never know what he or Canon Albrecht de Melion suffered at the back of that fateful drawing were some lines of writing which may be supposed to throw light on the situation. Contradictio, Solomonis, Comb, Demonio, Nocturno, Albericus de Melion, Delianavate, Vidus in Auditorium, Que Habitat, Sancte Bertrand, 
demonorium effugatar intercedi pro me miserimo premium udi nocte twelve day sixteen ninety four Udebo mox ultimum. Pacao et passasum plura ad hoc passuras. December 29, 1703. The dispute of Solomon with the demon of the night, drawn by Alberic de Melion. Versicle, O Lord, make haste to help me. Psalm, whosoever dwelleth. Saint Bertrand, who puttest devils to flight, pray for me, most unhappy. I saw it first on the night of December 12, 1694. Soon I shall see it for the last time. I have sinned and suffered and have more to suffer yet. December 29, 1701. The Gallia Christiana gives the date of the canon's death as December 31, 1701, in bed of a sudden seizure. Details of this kind are not common in the great work of the Samarthani. I never quite understood what was Deniston's view of the events I have narrated. He quoted to me once a text from Ecclesiastes, Some spirits there be that are created for vengeance and in their fury lay on sore strokes. On another occasion he said, Isaiah was a very sensible man. Doesn't he say something about night monsters living in the ruins of Babylon? These things are rather beyond us at present. Another confidence of his impressed me rather, and I sympathized with it. We had been last year to Comanche to see Canon Albrecht's tomb. It's a great marble erection with an effigy of the canon in a large wig and sutin, and an elaborate eulogy of his learning below. I saw Deniston talking for some time with the vicar of St. Bertrand's, and as we drove away, he said to me, I hope it isn't wrong. You know I'm a Presbyterian, but I, I believe there will be saying of Mass and singing of dirges for Albrecht de Melion's rest. Then he added with a touch of the northern British in his tone, I had no notion they came so dear. Wow, there was another creepy story. Uh, don't buy old books from old men. Absolutely not. I know sometimes when I just get around old manuscripts, they kind of just... Uh, the awe or even maybe the terror kind of comes over you. Yeah, it's just amazing that you have this painting and then whatever was in that or... Whatever this illustration was, that that demon basically leapt out of those pages and was sitting right next to him. I think I would have done more than just kind of fall out of my chair. I think I would have ran screaming from the room. And probably have white streaks of hair and all kinds of stuff from fear. What's amazing is the two guys who came into the room to help him out saw nothing. Yeah, the white streaks would be kind of cool, but yeah, I would definitely not like the fear. All right, so let's move on to another story. Our next tale is The Red Lodge by H. Russell Wakefield. I am writing this from an imperative sense of duty, for I consider The Red Lodge is a foul death trap and utterly unfit to be a human habitation. It has its own proper denizens, and because I know its owner to be an unspeakable blackguard to allow it to be so used for his financial advantage. He knows the perils of the place perfectly well. I wrote him of our experiences, and he didn't even acknowledge the letter. And two days ago, I saw the ghastly pest house advertised in Country Life. So anyone who rents the Red Lodge in future will receive a copy of this document, as well with some uncomfortable words from Sir William. And that scoundrel Wilkes can take what action he pleases. I certainly didn't carry any prejudice against the place down to it with me. I'd been too busy to look over it myself. But my wife reported extremely favorably, and I took her word for most things, and I could tell by the photographs that it was a magnificent specimen of the medium-sized Queen Anne house, just the ideal thing for me. Mary said the garden was perfect, and there was the river for Tim at the bottom of it. I had been longing for a holiday and was in the highest spirits as I traveled down. I was not in the highest spirits for long. My first vague, faint uncertainty came to me so soon as I had crossed the threshold. I am a painter by profession, and therefore sharply responsive to color tone. Well, it was a brilliantly fine day. The hall of the Red Lodge was fully lighted, yet it seemed a shade off key, as it were, as though I were regarding it through a pair of slightly darkened glasses. Only a painter would have noticed it, I fancy. When Mary came out to greet me, she was not looking well as I had hoped, or as well as a week in the country should have made her look. Everything all right, I asked? Oh, yes, she replied, but I thought she found it difficult to say so. And then my eye detected a curious little spot of green on the maroon rug in front of the fireplace. I picked it up. It seemed like a patch of river slime. I suppose Tim brings those in, said Mary. I've found several, of course. He promises that he doesn't. And then for a moment we were silent. 
and a very unusual sense of constraint seemed to set a barrier between us. I went out into the garden to smoke a cigarette before lunch and sat myself down under a very fine mulberry tree. I wondered if, after all, I had been wise to have left it all to Mary. There was nothing wrong with the house, of course, but I am a bit psychic and I always know the mood or character of a house. One welcomes you with the tail-writhing enthusiasm of a really nice dog, makes you at home and at ease at once. Others are sullen, watchful, hostile with things to hide. They make you feel that you have obtruded yourself into some curious affairs which are none of your business. I'd never encountered so hostile, aloof, and secretive a living place as the Red Lodge seemed when I first entered it. Well, it couldn't be helped, though it was disappointing, and there was Tim coming back from his walk and the luncheon gong. My son seemed a little subdued and thoughtful, though he looked pretty well, and soon we were chattering away with those quick changes of key which occur with the respective ages of the conversationalist are 40, 36, and 6 and one half. And after a bottle of mersalt and a glass of port, I began to think I'd been a morbid ass. I was still so thinking when I began my holiday in the best possible way by going to sleep in an exquisitely comfortable chair under the mulberry tree. But I have slept better. I dozed off, but I had a silly impression of being watched, so that I kept waking up in case there was someone with his eye on me. I was lying back and could just see a window on the second floor framed by a gap in the leaves, and on one occasion, when I woke rather sharply from one of those dozes, I thought I saw for a moment a face peering down at me, and this face seemed curiously flattened against the pane, just a carryover from a dream. I concluded, however, I didn't feel like sleeping anymore and began to explore the garden. It was completely walled in, I found, except for the far end, where there was a door leading through to a path which, running parallel to the right-hand wall, led to the river a few yards away. I noticed on this door several of those patches of green slime for which Tim was supposedly responsible. It was a dark little corner cut off of the rest of the garden by two rowan trees, a cool, silent little place, I thought, and then it was time for Tim's cricket lesson, which was interrupted by the arrival of some infernal callers. But they were pleasant people, as a matter of fact, the local nuts I gathered, who owned the manor house, Sir William Prowse and his lady, and his daughter. I went for a walk with him after tea. Who had this house before us, I asked. People called Hawker, he replied. That was two years ago. I wonder why the owner doesn't live in it, I said. It isn't an expensive place to keep up. Sir William paused as if considering his reply. I think he dislikes being so near the river. I'm not sorry, for I detest the fellow. By the way, how long have you taken it for? Three months, I replied, till the end of October. Well, if I can do anything for you, I shall be delighted. If you're in any trouble, come straight to me. He slightly emphasized the last sentence. I rather wondered what sort of trouble Sir William envisioned for me. Probably he shared the general opinion that artists were quite mad at times, and that when I had one of those lapses, I should destroy the piece in some manner. However, I was duly grateful. I was sorry to find Tim didn't seem to like the river. He appeared nervous of it, and I determined to help him overcome this. For the few terrors one carries through life with one, the better. And they can often be laid by delicate treatment in childhood. Curiously enough, the year before at Frinton, he seemed to have had no fear of the sea. The rest of the day passed uneventfully. At least I think I can say so. After dinner, I strolled down to the end of the garden, meaning to go through the door and have a look at the river. Just as I got my hand on the latch, there became a very sharp, furtive whistle. I turned round quickly, but seeing no one, concluded it had come from someone in the lane outside. However, I didn't investigate further, but went back into the house. I woke up the next morning feeling a shade depressed. My dressing room smelled stale and bitter. I flung its windows open. As I did so, I felt my right foot slip on something. It was one of those small, slimy green patches. Now, Tim would never come into my dressing room. An annoying little puzzle. How on earth had that patch... Which question kept forcing its way into my mind as I dressed? How could a patch of green slime... How could a patch of green slime... Dropped from something? From what? I am very fond of my wife... She slaved for me when I was poor and always kept me happy, comfortable, and faithful, and she gave me my small son, Timothy. I must stand between her and patches of green slime. 
What in the hell's name was I talking about? It was a flamingly fine day, yet all during breakfast my mind trying to find some sufficient reason for these funny little patches of green slime and not finding it. After breakfast I told Tim I would take him out to the boat on the river. Must I, Daddy, he said, looking anxiously at me. No, of course not, I replied a trifle irritably. But I believe you'll enjoy it. Should I be funk if I didn't come? No, Tim, but I think you should try it once anyway. All right, he said. He's a plunky little chap and did his very best to pretend to be enjoying himself, but I saw it was a failure from the start. Perplexed and upset, I asked this nurse if she knew of any reason for this sudden fear of water. No, sir, she said. The first day he ran down to the river just as he used to run down to the sea, but all of a sudden he started crying and ran back to the house. It seemed to me he'd seen something in the water which frightened him. We spent the afternoon motoring around the neighborhood, and already I found a faint distaste at the idea of returning to the house. And again, I had the impression that we were intruding and that something had been going on during our absence, which our return had interrupted. Mary, pleading a headache, went to bed soon after dinner, and I went to the study to read. Directly I shut the door and had again that very unpleasant sensation of being watched. It made the reading of Sidgwick's The Use of Words and Reasoning, an old favorite of mine which requires concentration, a difficult business. Time after time I found myself peering into the dark corners and shifting my position. And there were little sharp sounds, just the oak paneling crackling, I suppose. After a time I became more absorbed in the book and less fidgety, and then I heard a very soft cough just behind me. I felt little icy rays pour down through me, but I would not look around, and I would go on reading. I had just finished the following passage, quote, however many things may be said about Socrates or about any fact observed, there remains still more that might be said if the need arose. The need is determining factor. Hence the distinction between complete and incomplete description, though perfectly sharp and clear in the abstract, can only have a meaning can only be applied to actual cases if it be taken as equivalent to sufficient description, the sufficiency being relative to some purpose. Evidently, the description of Socrates as a man, scanty though it is, may be fully sufficient for the purpose of the modest inquiry of which he is mortal or not, end quote. When my eye was caught by a green patch which suddenly appeared on the floor beside me, and then another and another, following a straight line towards the door. I picked up the nearest one, and it was a bit of soaking slime. I called on with my willpower, for I feared something worse to come, and it should not materialize, and then no more patches appeared. I got up and walked deliberately, slowly to the door, turned on the light in the middle of the room, and came back and turned out the reading lamp and went to my dressing room. I sat down and thought things over. There was something very wrong with this house. I had passed the stage of pretending otherwise, and my inclination was to take my family away from it the next day. But that meant sacrificing 186 pounds, and we had nowhere else to go. It was conceivable that this phenomena were perceptible only to me, being half a Highlander. I might be able to stick it out if I were careful and kept my tail up, for apparitions of this sort are partially subjective, one brings something of oneself to their materialization. That is hard saying, but I believe to be true. If Mary and Tim and the servants were immune, it was up to me to face and fight this nastiness. As I undressed, I came to the decision that I would describe nothing then and there, and that I would see what happened. I made this decision against my better judgment, I think. In bed, I tried to thrust all things away from me by a conscious effort to change the subject, as it were. The easiest subject for me to switch over to is the myriad-sided, useless, consistently abused business of creating things, stories out of pens and ink and paper, representations of things and moods out of paint, brushes and canvas, and our own miseries, perhaps out of wine, woman and song. With a considerable effort, therefore, and with the edges of my brain, anxious to be busy with bits of green slime, I recalled an article I had read that day on a glorious word, Jigang Biwagang, the youth movement, that pregnant or merely wind-swollen Teutonism, how ponderously it attempted to canonize with its polysyllabic sonority that inverted Boy Scoutish 
of the said youths and maidens. One bad, mad deed, sunnet, scribble of some kind, lousy daub a day. Bunk without spunk, sauce without force, futurism without a past, merely a transition from one yelping pose to another. And then I suddenly found myself at the end of the garden, attempting desperately to hide myself behind a rowan tree, while my eyes were held relentlessly to face the door. And then it began slowly to open, and something which was horridly unlike anything I'd seen before began passing through it, and I knew it knew I was there. And then my head seemed to burst and flamed asunder, splintering and destroyed, and I woke trembling to feel that something in the darkness was poised an inch or two above me. And then, drip, 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 something began falling on my face. Mary was in the bed next to mine, and I would not scream, but flung the clothes over my head, my eyes streaming with tears of terror. And so I remained cowering until I heard the clock strike five, and dawn, the alley I longed for, came, and the birds began to sing, and then I slept. I awoke a wreck, and after breakfast, feeling the need to be alone, I pretended I wanted to sketch, and I went out into the garden. Suddenly I recalled Sir William's remark about coming to see him if there were any trouble. Not much difficulty in guessing what he had meant. I'd go and see him about it at once. I wished I knew whether Mary was troubled too. I hesitated to ask her, for, if she were not, she were certain to become suspicious and uneasy if I questioned her. And then I discovered that, while my brain had been busy with its thoughts, my hand had also not been idle, but had been occupied in drying a very singular design in the sketching block. I watched it as it went automatically on. Was it a design or a figure of some sort? When had I seen something like it before? My God, in my dream last night, I tore it to pieces and got up in agitation and made my way to the manor house along the path through tall, bowing, stippled grasses hissing lightly in the breeze. My inclination was to run to the station and take the next train to anywhere. Pure, undiluted panic, an insufficiently analyzed word, that which causes men to trample on women and children when death is making its choice. Of course I had Mary and Tim and the servants to keep me from it, but suppose they had no claim on me. Should I desert them? No, I should not. Why? Such things aren't done by respectable inhabitants of Great Britain. A people despised and respected by all other tribes, despised as Philistines, but it took the jawbone of an ass to subdue that hardy race. Respected for what? Birkenhead stuff? No, not the noble lord, for there were no glittering prizes for those who went down to the bottom of the sea in ships. My mind deliberately restricting itself to such highly debacable jingoism, I reached the manor house to be told that Sir William was up in London for the day, but would return that evening. Would he ring me up on his return? Yes, sir. And then, with lagging steps, back to the Red Lodge. I took Mary for a drive in the car after lunch, anything to get out of the beastly place. Tim didn't come, as he preferred to play in the garden. In light of what had happened, I suppose I shall be criticized for leaving Tim alone with the nurse, but at that time I held the theory that these appearances were in no way malignant, and that it was more than possible that even if Tim did see anything, he wouldn't be frightened, not realizing it was out of the ordinary in any way. After all, nothing that I had seen or heard at any rate during the daytime would strike him as unusual. Mary was very silent, and I was beginning to feel sure from a certain depression and oppression in her manner and appearance that my trouble was hers. It was on the tip of my tongue to say something, but I resolved to wait until I heard what Sir William had to say. It was a dark, somber, and brooding afternoon, and my spirits fell as we turned for home. What a home. We got back at six, and I just stopped the engine and helped Mary out when I heard a scream from the garden. I rushed round to see Tim, his hands to his eyes, staggering across the lawn, the nurse running behind him. And then he screamed again and fell. I carried him to the house and laid him down on the sofa in the drawing room, and Mary went to him. I took the nurse by the arm and out of the room... She was panting and crying down a face of chalk. What happened? What happened? I asked. I don't know what it was, sir, but we'd been walking in the lane and we'd left the door open. Master Tim was a bit ahead of me and went through the door first and then he screamed like that. Did you see anything that could have frightened him? 
No, sir, nothing. I went back to them. It was no good questioning Tim, and there was nothing coherent to be learnt from his, his hysterical sobbing. He grew calmer presently and was taken up to bed. Suddenly he turned to Mary and looked at her with eyes of terror. The green monkey won't get at me, will it, mummy? No, no, it's all right now, said Mary, and soon after he went to sleep, and then she and I went down to the drawing room. She was on the border of hysteria herself. Oh, Tom, what is the matter with this awful house? I'm terrified. Ever since I've been here, I've been terrified. Do you see things? Yes, I replied. Oh, I wish I'd known. I didn't want to worry you if you hadn't. Let me tell you what it's been like. On the day we arrived, I saw a man pass ahead of me into my bedroom. Of course, I only thought I had. And then I heard beastly whisperings, and every time I passed turn in the corridor, I knew there was someone just around the corner. And then the day before you arrived, I woke suddenly, and something seemed to force me down to go to the window, and I crawled there on hands and knees and peered through the blind. It was just light enough to see, and suddenly I saw someone running down the lane, his or her hounds outstretched, and there was something ghastly just beside him, and they disappeared behind the trees at the end. I'm terrified every minute. What about the servants? Nurse hasn't said anything, but the others have, I'm certain. And then there's those slimy patches. I think they're the vilest of all. I don't think Tim has been troubled till now, but I'm sure he's been puzzled and uncertain several times. Well, I said, it's pretty obvious we must clear out. I'm seeing Sir William about it tomorrow, I hope, and I'm certain enough of what he'll advise. Meanwhile, we must think over where to go. It is a nasty jar, though. I don't mean merely the money, though that's bad enough, but the fuss. Just when I hoped we were going to be happy and settled. However, it's got to be done. We should be mad after a week if this filth-drenched hole. Just then the telephone bell rang. It was a message to say Sir William would be pleased to see me at half past ten tomorrow. With the dust came that sense of being watched, waited for, followed about, plotted against, an atmosphere of quite hunting malignancy. A thick mist came up from the river, and as I was changing for dinner, I noticed the lights from the window seemed to project a series of swiftly changing pictures on its gray crawling screen. The one opposite my window, for example, was unpleasantly suggestive of three figures staring in and seeming to grow nearer and larger. The effect must have been slightly hypnotic, for suddenly I started back, for it was as if they were about to close on me. I pulled down the blind and hurried downstairs. During dinner, we decided that unless Sir William had something very reassuring to say, we would go back to London two days later and stay at a hotel till we find somewhere else to spend the next six weeks. Just before going to bed, we went up to the night nursery to see if Tim was all right. This room was at the top of a short flight of stairs. As these stairs were covered with green slime, there was a pool of muck just outside the door. We took him down to sleep with us. The permanent occupants of the Red Lodge waited until the light was out, but then I felt them come thronging, sleeping in one by one, their weapon, fear. It seemed to me they were masked for the attack. A yard away, my life was lying with my son in her arms, so I must fight. I lay back, gripped the sides of the bed, and strove with all my might to hold the assailants back. As the hours went by, I felt myself beginning to get the upper hand, and a sense of exultation came to me. But an hour before dawn, they made their greatest effort. I knew they were willing me to creep on my hands and knees to the window and peep through the blind, and that if I did, we were doomed. As I set my teeth and tightened my grip till I felt racked with agony, the sweat poured from me. I felt them come crowding round the bed and thrusting their faces into mine, and a voice in my head kept saying insistently, You must crawl to the window and look through the blind. In my mind's eye, I could see myself crawling stealthily across the floor and pulling the blind aside, but who would be staring back at me? Just when I felt my resistance breaking, I heard a sweet, sleepy twitter from a tree outside and saw the blind touched by a faint suggestion of light. And at once, those with whom I had been struggling left me and went their way, and utterly exhausted, I slept. In the morning, I found, somewhat ironically, that Mary had slept better than on any night since she came down. Half past ten found me entering the manor house, a delightful, nondescript old place, which started wagging its tail as soon as I entered it. Sir William was awaiting me in the library. I expected this would happen, he said gravely. And now tell me. I gave him a short outline of our experiences. Yes, he said. 
it's always much the same story. Every time that horrible place has been let, I have felt a sense of personal responsibility, and yet I cannot give a proper warning, for letting of haunted houses is not a, yet a criminal offense, though it ought to be, and I couldn't afford a libel action. And, as a matter of fact, one old couple that had the house 15 years and were perfectly delighted with it, being troubled in no way. But now let me tell you what I know of the Red Lodge. I have studied it for 40 years, and I regard it as my personal enemy. The local tradition is that the second owner, early in the 18th century, wished to get rid of his wife and bribed his servants to frighten her to death. Just short of the ancestor I can imagine that Blackguard Wilkes being descended from. What devilries they perpetrated, I don't know. But she is supposed to have rushed from the house just before dawn one day and drowned herself. Whereupon her husband installed a small harem in the house. But it was a failure, for each of these charmers one by one rushed to the river just before dawn. And finally the husband himself did the same. Of the period between then and forty years ago, I have no record. But the local tradition is that it was the scene of tragedy after tragedy and then was shut up for a long time. When I first began to study it, it was occupied by two bachelor brothers. One shot himself in the room, which I imagine you use as your bedroom, and the other drowned himself in the usual way. I may tell you that this is the worst room in the house. The one the unfortunate lady is supposed to have occupied is locked up, you know, the one on the second floor. I imagine Wilkes mentioned it to you. Yes, he did, I replied. Said he kept important papers there. Yes, well, he was forced in self-defense to do so ten years ago, and since then the death rate has been lower. But in those forty years, twenty people have taken their lives in the house or in the river, and six children have been drowned accidentally. The last case was Lord Passover's butler in 1924. He was seen to run down to the river and leap in. He was pulled out but had died of shock. The people who took the house two years ago left in a week and threatened to bring an action against Wilkes, but they were warned that they had no legal case. And I strongly advise you, more than that, implore you to follow their example, though I can imagine the financial loss and great inconvenience for that house is a death trap. I will, I replied. I forgot to mention one thing. When my little boy was so badly frightened, he said something about a green monkey. He did, said Sir William sharply. Well, then, it is absolutely imperative that you should leave at once. You remember I mentioned the death of certain children? Well, in each case, they have been found drowned in the reeds just at the end of the lane, and the people about there have a firm belief that the green thing, or the green death, that is sometimes referred to as the first and sometimes as the other, is connected with danger to children. Have you seen anything yourself, I asked? I go to the infernal place as little as possible, replied Sir William, but when I called on your predecessors, I most distinctly saw someone leave the drawing room as we enter it. Otherwise... All I have noted is a certain dream which recurs with curious regularity. I find myself standing at the end of the lane and watching the river, always in a sort of breezy half-light, and presently something comes floating down the stream. I can see it jerking up and down, and I always feel passionately anxious to see what it may be. At first I think it was a log, and when it gets exactly opposite me, it changes its course and comes toward me, and then I see that it is a dead body, very decomposed. And when it reaches the bank, it climbs up towards me, and then I am thankful to say I always awake. Sometimes I have thought that one day I shall not wake just then, and that on this occasion something will happen to me. But that is probably merely the silly fancy of an old gentleman who has concerned himself with these singular events rather more than is good for his nerves. That is obviously the explanation, I say, and I am extremely grateful to you. We will leave tomorrow. But don't you think we should attempt to devise some means by which other people may be spared this sort of thing, and this brute Wilkes will be prevented from letting the house again? I certainly do, and we will discuss it further on some other occasion. And now go and pack. A very great and charming gentleman, Sir William, I reflected, as I walked back to the Red Lodge. Tim seemed to have recovered excellently well, but I thought it wise to keep him out of the house as much as possible. So while Mary and the maids packed after lunch, I went with him for a walk through the fields. We took our time, and it was only when the sky grew black and there was a distant rumble of thunder and a menacing little breeze came up from the west that we turned to come back. We had to hurry as we'd reached the meadow next to the house, 
there came a ripping flash and the storm broke. We started to run for the door into the garden when I tripped over my boot lace, which had become undone, and fell. Tim ran on. I had just tied the lace and was on my feet again when I saw something slip through the door. It was green, thin, tall. It seemed to glance back at me, and what should have been its face was a patch of south slime. At that moment, Tim saw it, screamed, and ran for the river. The figure turned and followed him, and before I could reach him, hovered over him. Tim screamed again and flung himself in. A moment later, I passed through the green and stenching film and dived after him. I found him writhing in the reeds and brought him to the bank. I ran with him in my arms to the house, and I shall not forget Mary's face as she saw us from the bedroom window. By 9 o'clock, we were all in a hotel in London, and the Red Lodge was an evil, fading memory. I shut the front door when I'd packed them all in the car, and as I took hold of the knob, I felt a quick and powerful pressure from the other side, and it shut with a crash. The permanent occupants of the Red Lodge were in sole possession once more. I don't know about anybody else, but I was on the edge of my seat here by the fire. What a creepy story about a creepy house. Oh, no kidding. I, it's just like I can't even imagine. And, you know, when you hear people, whether it be in a story or in real life with these places, I don't know how they even last two minutes there. Well, you know, he gave the reason that a lot of people do in the story. We put this amount of money down and we couldn't afford to lose it. What, where were we going to go? So many people stay because of the money. Yeah, or even, I guess, also the thing that he mentioned was also just like the feeling that he was kind of nuts and, yeah, and an overactive really imagination. This. Sure. I mean, if I saw green slime, the first thing that came to my mind when I was hearing that was the ectoplasm from Ghostbusters. <laughs> I was just thinking green slime with that. But did you ever have that... that um in your yes. childhood called slime where yes. you put it down so and it run down fingers. your hand. Yeah. Or Nickelodeon used to slime people too and it was a green kind of slime. So I, I had those visions of that. There also was a movie, Creep Show. Did you ever see that? I did not. There were some people that had drowned, I think, in the ocean or something and they come back to get this guy and they're covered in you know seaweed and all kinds of stuff and looking all nasty like straight out of the ocean kind of thing. And So I was just having visions of all of that as I mm-hmm. listened to this story. But oh... How creepy. He almost lost his little guy there right at the end as they're trying to get out of there. Yeah, thank goodness he went to talk to the gentleman and knew that there was no more delay. Let's just get the heck out mm-hmm. of here. And it's funny, you know, how they weren't talking to each other because they didn't want the other to think that they I'm were crazy. crazy. Exactly. Yeah. You did a fine job reading that. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. Well, thank you. And I'm very grateful that you already know I'm nuts, so I never have to hide any hauntings from you. <laughs> you can just tell me and I'll believe you. Straight up. She's crazy. <laughs> so thank you for hanging out here by the fire with us this evening. And we hope that Santa brings you everything you want. Yes. Yeah, so if you look on the TV, they should be tracking him. And he he might yeah. be close to your house. You never know. Norad has been tracking him all day. So from History Goes Bump, we want to wish you all a, a very, very Merry Christmas. Christmas. This has been your host, Diane. And Denise. Y'all take care now. Bye-bye. <laughs> was the night before Christmas and all through the castle. My monsters were having a yuletide hassle. The tree was all trimmed in foolish things like wolfman's fangs and vampire wings. It was a monster's holiday. But they were up to no good. It was a monster's holiday. Didn't act like good monsters should. It was a monster's holiday. They found themselves a new prey. It was a monster's holiday. They planned to rob Santa's sleigh. They were making a list and checking it twice. Frankenstein wanted a shiny new try, a new chain for Yanish, a brace for Eager's back, a shaver for the Wolfman, a new cape for Drac. It was a master's holiday. But they were up to no good. It was a master's holiday. Back like good monsters. It was a master's holiday. They found themselves a new prey. It was a master's they holiday. They to rob Santa's sleigh. The mummy was to signal from the castle roof At the very first sound of a reindeer's hoof The Santa slid down the chimney wall The zombies were to make off with slaying all For beyond the moat there rose such a clatter I jumped to the window to see what was the matter Like a bolt of lightning it happened so quick There in our midst stood old Saint Nick It was a monster's holiday But they were up to no good It was a 
stupid monster suit. They found themselves a new prey. They planned to rob Santa's sleigh. But he began to dig down deep in his sack and came up with the traction for Igor's back. Drax had his cape. Frankie promised to behave. And the wolf man was happy. Now he can shake. Don't talk to me.